Mark chapter 6, I'm entitling this message, The Servant's Outdoor Feast, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before him and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two sashimi slices. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He blessed and he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. We find ourselves in the sixth chapter of Mark's gospel. And in the chapter, we have both seen and been given opportunities. Opportunities to know the servant in verses 1 through 6. The opportunity to share his message in verses 7 through 13. The opportunity to repent in verses 14 through 29. And now we're given an amazing opportunity, an incredible opportunity. And that opportunity is to demonstrate mercy and sensitivity and compassion In verses 30 through 44, you'll remember that the disciples, the twelve, had been sent out to teach and preach and confront evil and give a message of hope. And after an intensive time of unrelenting ministry, the disciples needed a break, a rest. We believe it's important to have time to rest. We believe it's important to minister to people, but it's also important to have times to recharge and rejuvenate. It was Dr. Vance Havner who said, if you don't come apart and rest, you will come apart. The end. Yeah, that's right. Jesus attempts to withdraw from the crowds. 
but his attempt proves unsuccessful. I told you earlier I have attempted three times to quit the radio and three times they've come back and said, please return. The people followed him and they found him and he had compassion on them. In the chapter, we move from the malice of the people of Nazareth. Remember, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah to the mission of the twelve in verses six through eleven to the martyrdom of John the Baptist in verses fourteen through twenty nine. And now we come to a part of the passage that is ripe with miracles. As a matter of fact, Jesus will feed the 5,000. This miracle, by the way, is noted in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and John. It is probably the most famous miracle that Jesus ever performed. And I suspect the reason why it's the most famous miracle is because it had so many witnesses. Later, he will walk on water in verses 45 through 52. But remember, most of the time he took a boat. And then Jesus will heal the multitudes in verses 53 through 65. All of this will be important for you because the truth is we come to Jesus hungry. Sometimes we will face storms and sometimes we're going to need a restoration to wholeness and wellness Let's begin the servant's compassion for the crowds in verse 30. It says, then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. When we come to verse 30, it's a reiteration of what had taken place earlier. Remember, they had gone out to teach and preach and to confront evil. And they come back in an accountable fashion and begin to relate to Jesus what they have done. And in verse 31, it says, and he said to them, come aside by yourselves. To a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they didn't even have time to eat. The word translated rest is ana, pa'ao. It's an intensive form of pa'ao. It's in the middle voice. It means to stop. It means to cease. It means to leave off. When you compound it and then give it the intensive form, it means I need you to stop. Take rest. That's the idea. And so in verse 32, it says, so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Let me paint the picture for you. They've been in Capernaum, which is in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They push off into a boat. And as you can imagine, if you can picture the Sea of Galilee going north and south and east and west, They go north along the shoreline and they come to the mouth of where the the mountain of Hermon empties into um, a river and the river empties into the Sea of Galilee. And there's a vast marsh that begins to form on the north and the east. And because there's a vast marsh, not very many people settle that particular area. So it becomes sort of a retreat center. There's a lot of water there and there's a lot of foliage there and there's a lot of wildlife there. But the people who are in Capernaum, the people who are in Gerizah, the people who are along the shores of the lake, they see Jesus leaving and the cities begin to merge, if you will. They come from the south, then they come from the east and the west, and a crowd begins to gather to the place where they're going. 
It says in verse 33, but the multitude saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and they came together to him. And in verse 34, it says in Jesus, when he came out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Picture it. Jesus is there. They arrive on the shore. A huge multitude has gathered. Like Moses in the wilderness, he looks out over the crowd. And Jesus looks out over the crowd. And the Bible says that he's moved with disappointment? No. Moved with annoyance? No. Moved with anger? No. He's moved with Compassion. And by the way, this is an intense word with roots in the Greek word. It's splunk, nizomai. It's a Greek word that would later be translated by the Latin people to des- describe your guts. It's the viscera. It's the abdomen. It's the stomach. In the ancient world, this is the place where feeling goes Down to the core of your being. I don't know if you've ever been in a car accident or if you've ever experienced the death of a loved one. If you've ever experienced a husband or a wife um, walking out on you. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of stumbling across a dead body. I don't know if you've ever watched a child starve to death. But it has an effect on you. It affects you to the core of your being. You've probably heard people describe this feeling like someone has kicked you in the stomach. It radiates throughout your body. It hurts to the core of your being. This is the feeling that goes down to the very, very center of your identity. Jesus feels deep, tender, mercy, and compassion. In James chapter 5, verse 11, we read, The Lord, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. William Copper said, quote, Man may dismiss compassion from his heart, but God never will. Sarah Patterson writes, quote, When you make that one effort to feel compassion instead of blame or self-blame, the heart Opens and then it continues to open and Jesus is standing on the shore and he sees the crowd and his heart begins to open. And look what it says. The text says, because they were like a sheep, not having a shepherd. Our society is not an agrarian society. We typically don't go out on the farm to get our vittles. We don't slaughter sheep or goats or animals. We go to King Supers. We go to Safeway. We go to Albertsons. We go to the market and we push a carpet, a cart. And in a clinical way, we fill the cart with what we think that we need. But in that particular society, everyone would have understood the meaning. When it says because they were like sheep without a a shepherd, there are words that come to my mind. Lost, lonely, dependent, defenseless. That's what's going on inside of Jesus's heart because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. 
So he begins to teach them, the Bible says, many things. Or more exactly, it says he began to teach them at great length. So what did he teach them? The text doesn't tell us. We have to go to Luke's gospel to discover that. In Luke chapter 9, verse 11, we're given the answer. In Luke it says, but when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He began to speak to them about the kingdom of God. Remember, the kingdom of, the God, the kingdom of God is the place where God dwells, where his glory dwells, where God is in charge. The kingdom of God is the place not only where God is in control and where the Lord is sovereign, it is the place where you're invited to citizenship. It's the place where you get to go. And it's the place where you get to embrace all that God has for you. It's the place where there is freedom and there is life and there is love and there is forgiveness and there is hope. It's the kingdom that's being offered to people who are estranged from this kingdom. As a matter of fact, Jesus spoke at length. Did he go to Isaiah chapter 53? Did he, did he quote the scripture? All we like sheep have gone astray. We, we each turn to our own way, but the Lord will lay on the Messiah the iniquity of us all. Because how can we enter into a kingdom where our hearts are distant from God and estranged from God? The crowds were tired of the empty, powerless preaching of the rabbis and the religious leaders, and they longed to be fed. And I'm hoping that's who you are. I'm hoping that you are men and women who want to come to church. And it's, it's not just the physical satisfaction that you're looking for, but there is something internal. There's something inside of your mind and your heart, because that's exactly what Jesus wants to do. He wants to fill your brain, but he also wants to fill your soul with what you need the most. Hope. Redemption, reconciliation. There's a deep hunger in America today. In the richest country in the world, many millions of American children go to bed hungry. According to the USDA household food security in the United States, that number is 16.2 million. 10.5 million kids are eligible for free or reduced school lunches on an average school day. In 2010, 40.3 million people in over 18.6 million households across America got what was known as SNAP, that's food stamps. About half of those households, 8.9 million, were households with children. 15.7 million children. That represents 21% of all of the children who live in America. They live in poverty. The homeless population is increasing. In the world, the picture is way more bleak. One out of every two children go to bed hungry. As a matter of fact, one in five in the world live on the very edge of starvation. When I was in India earlier this week, I, I was speaking with K.P. Yohanan. He, he reminded me that 150 million children 
are on the very edge of starvation. This is not to make you feel guilty. We live in a country that spends $5 billion on pet food and another $5 billion on fad diets. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't feed your pets and give it to the poor. I'm not saying don't lose weight. So You know who you are if you need to lose weight. You don't need me to tell you. The whole point of telling you that we spend $5 billion on pet food and $5 billion on fad diets isn't to make you feel guilty, but rather to put into perspective the reality of the challenges that we face as a congregation and as a people group and as a culture and a society. I'm trying to put things in perspective because the physical need for food and food security doesn't even come close to the spiritual need for freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. One out of every five kids goes to bed hungry, but guess what? Four out of five kids go to bed and they don't have a right relationship with God and they don't know Jesus. There's something way worse. There's something way more dark and way more empty and way more profound. Men and women grope in philosophical and religious darkness and there is a spiritual hunger that makes the temporal hunger and the physical sustenance seem mild by comparison. There are people who go to bed without hope and they're in a dark place. And they go to bed and they think about whether or not they should even wake up the next morning. Here's what they think about. They think about killing themselves. And they're looking for any excuse, any excuse, any excuse to live one more day. It's the restlessness of the heart. It's the famished heart. Desperate for spiritual bread and real living water. This is the heart that Augustine described as he said it will find no rest until it finds its rest in the creator. And the miracle, the miracle that is about to take place isn't simply a miracle of filling people's stomachs. It becomes a mechanism and a sign to tell you something that's true about Jesus. Because guess what? Whether you know him or not, he loves you and he has compassion for you. And by the way, some nine times in the New Testament we read about the compassion of Jesus, even now in heaven, in a glorified body, on an eternal throne. He continues to have compassion on mercy. And if you're wondering, as he looks down on you today, he sees the emptiness and the darkness, not just the wickedness. His thoughts aren't condemning thoughts. He's not looking for a way to send you to hell. He's looking for a way to redeem you and to fill your heart with hope. Charles Parkhurst has said, sympathy is two hearts tugging on the same load. And so your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your brother and your sister, as they in sympathy begin to pray you begin to join with Jesus about compassion and 
sympathy as you begin to tug at the same load. True sympathy is often born in sorrow. The world longs for, hungers for compassion and sympathy. So what do you see? What do you see when you look into the crowd? What is it that you see when you go to a baseball game or a football game? What is it when you look into the crowd and you look into the individual faces? What is it that you see when you are on the 16th Street Mall? What is it that you see when you see a group of people gathered together and you begin to look in their face and you begin to look in their eyes in the hopes of having just a little bit of a glimpse into their heart? What is it that you see? What moves you? What does it take for you to see something and then cause you to respond to the need that you see? And I think it's significant that Jesus taught them. Jesus sees them and has compassion on them. And he doesn't turn to Peter, James and John. He doesn't turn to Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew. He talks to them. He doesn't delegate the responsibility to others. He will take care of it himself. The love of Jesus and the sympathy of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus will cause him to labor well into the day. And as always, the servant gives of himself, not tending to his own needs. Go back to verse 31. For there were many coming and going. They did not even have time to eat. There's a reason why the disciples, there's a reason why Jesus is a food camel. Because he knows there's work to do. Paul Frost said, man's strongest instinct is to self-preservation and grace's highest call is to self-sacrifice. And there's the dividing line. Grace, self-sacrifice, selfishness or selflessness, preservation. The fear of sacrifice is something that causes many people to neglect the blessings of God. Sometimes Jesus asks us to sacrifice ourselves for others. There may come a time when Jesus asks you, to go without so that somebody else can have. You know, in a Nazi prison camp in World War II, a prisoner was caught escaping in his punishment. The commandant of the prison ordered that ten men be placed in solitary confinement and that they be starved to death. And one young man who had been chosen had a wife and several small children. And a Polish priest, Father Kolbe, insisted that he be chosen to take that young man's place. And all the men starved to death. And Father Colby was the last to succumb to the deprivation. He went into the circumstances and quietly but consistently would, would begin to pray for and then minister to the men who were sentenced to die. And he helped them and he prayed for them and he ministered to them and one by one, they began to die, and he was the last one to die. The Nazis eventually gave the priest poison, and he still wouldn't die. And then the commandant doctor went in and gave him a lethal injection to hasten his death. And when they entered, there scratched on the piece of wood was a crucifix. 
You see, the love of Jesus is seen in the death of Jesus. And Jesus will speak to them about heaven because that's where they belong. And he will speak to them about the future because there is a future. But make no mistake about it. The love of Jesus is going to be seen not just simply in the miracle that he performs, but in the sacrifice that he is going to make. And Jesus will embrace the need to have nothing so that you can have everything. And look at the cooperation with the disciples beginning in verse 35. It says, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. In other words, what they're saying is, send them to Chick-fil-A. Oh, that's right. They're closed on Sunday. Send them to Burger King. Send them somewhere. Send them to a restaurant. Make them go away. Send them away, it says in verse 36, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat in this place, in the northeastern part of Bethsaida, in the place where there's a gigantic swamp. There is no place to eat. There's no place to go. Jesus is approached by the disciples. The disciples say to him about the crowd, do something, send them away. And by the way, that becomes a type and a picture for each and every one of us. There are two reactions to human need. There are two fundamental reactions that we have. Here's the disciples. Send them away. Here's Jesus's reaction. You feed them. Well, this brings up two more reactions, two reactions to human resources, the disciples. We don't have anything that really matters. Jesus. Give me what you have. Isn't that interesting? We're good at making excuses. But Jesus is bigger and greater than all of our excuses. It's easy to make excuses when we ought to be making opportunities. You see, there really are two kinds of leaders. Those who cause pain and those who bear pain. Those who create sorrow and those who divide the sorrow. And Jesus will himself do what's necessary. In verse 37, look what it says. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? You may not understand that passage in its entirety, but let me help you. A denarius was a single day's wage for a Roman soldier. With a denarius, you could buy a place to stay. You could buy a loaf of bread. Actually, you could buy two loaves of bread and a cup of wine. You could buy a place to stay, two loaves of bread and a cup of wine. And so 200 denarii would be about eight or nine months wages for a person. A person would have to work eight or nine months in order to have that amount of money. In both Mark chapter 6, verse 44, and in Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, we get an understanding of how big the crowd is. According to Matthew, it says there were 5,000 besides women and children. 
In other words, we have every reason to believe that the crowd would have swollen to 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 or more people. And so the disciples, we know from another gospel, they basically say, hey, we found a little kid's lunch, but what is that among so many If we actually sold everything that we have and we gave a little bit of something to everyone, we wouldn't have enough. I happened to be at a Promise Keepers event early on when, according to some estimates, there were some 20,000 men who showed up. And when those 20,000 men that showed up, the Promise Keepers had made a promise. They made a commitment that they were going to provide lunch, that they were going to feed 20,000 plus men. I happened to be there, and in waves of 5,000, the men took turns getting their lunch, but it was a major event that required absolute amazing amount of planning and preparation. The lines were enormous. The tables were filled with grilled chicken. There looked like there were mountains of chicken and mountains of potato salad and mountains of buns, and there was a mountain of trash. The trash was so high that it blotted out the Rocky Mountains. There were thousands of grills and thousands of volunteers. Contrast that with Jesus. A boy's lunch. A disciple's hunch. A crowd's hunger. The servant of God and the son of God peers into the ocean of humanity And he sees something way more than just a bunch of statistics. He sees hungry people. But he sees something way more than just the hunger in their belly. He sees the hunger in their souls and in their hearts. And he insists that something be done about it. And Jesus commands something be done. You give them something to eat. Look at verse 37. You may think it's a suggestion, but it's not. You should underline it. Because it has something to do with you. There may come a time in the not too distant future where Jesus brings into your life a man, a woman, a child, a circumstance. And you cry out to him. Jesus, do something. And Jesus says to you. You give them something to eat. You do something. Has it ever occurred to you in your wildest dreams, did it ever occur to you that God has given you the ability to see the need so that you can actually meet the need? Did it ever occur to you that Jesus might want you to act selflessly instead of selfishly? You give them something to eat. He's issuing a command. The disciples respond, even nine months wage wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd. The implication is, here's the idea. Here's their response. Here's their answer. We don't have enough. And what we do have doesn't really matter. We thought you were the one who came up with that excuse, but you would be wrong. The disciples used it thousands of years before you were ever born. I don't have any money for the poor. I am the poor. I don't have any money for the Lord. You know what most people who say, I don't have any money for the Lord, what they're really saying? I am the Lord. 
They don't really see the provision as being the Lord's. They quite literally see the provision as being them. This is my money. This is my check. These are my resources. They belong to me. But didn't you make a deal with the Lord? Didn't you say that your life was his life and your heart was his heart and your past was his past and your present is his present and your future is his future? God will take you and he will use your strengths, but this might come as a shock to you. He will even use your weaknesses. He will use what you have and he will also use what you don't have. He will use when you are strong and he will use you when you are weak. God wants to use you when you are most weak and when you are most worthless. Because when you are most weak and most worthless, that's when the miracle becomes the most outstanding. Look at verse 38. He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two little tiny pieces of sashimi. It's not even worth wrapping it in rice. Jesus asks the question, what do you have? They respond, look, what we have doesn't matter. What we have doesn't add up to a hill of beans. And Jesus says, give me what you have. And by the way, Jesus would perform no miracle until they gave him what they had. It's not the type of food given that becomes important. It's the fact that it's given that becomes important. Look what it is. Five loaves, two fish. It's rough. It's coarse. It's simple. It's modest. It's common. How could something so ordinary, how could something so plain, how could something so simple, how could something so modest add up to anything? Is that what you think when you put the dollar in the agape box? Is that what you think? I'll keep the five dollars because it's not going to add up to anything anyway. The disciples have some important lessons that they need to learn. What are those lessons? Well, some of them have to include Jesus loves us, that he has compassion. The servant has compassion on the crowd. He cares for them as individuals and as families and as a nation. And it's not good enough for Jesus to simply notice the need, but meet the need. And Jesus will use the most plain, the most ordinary, what other people consider useless in order to meet that need. And I want you to note something else. Because you may not see it unless you're willing to look real hard. The servant will feed everyone who's there. He'll feed the rich and he'll feed the poor. He'll feed the, the, the lame, the blind. He will feed everyone who believes and he will feed every single skeptic. And everyone will leave full. Everyone will leave physically full, but they won't necessarily leave spiritually satisfied. And if my brother and I decided to cook spaghetti and meatballs, everyone leaves full. Some, their faith will increase. But for others, their selfish desires will be reinforced. 
Because Jesus is way more than just a meal ticket. He's the bread that's come down from heaven. He's the bread of life. And everyone who has life must come to him. Everyone must partake of him if they're going to receive eternal life. But you know what else is important that day? Jesus will make a provision for everyone, but he won't force a single person to eat a single bite. This is why Jesus was Jewish and not Italian. Italian people will force you to eat. Ray Romano tells the story of growing up in his Italian home and his Italian mother. And he he would say, when you come to my house, you eat and you eat until you can't eat anymore. And my mom would say, do you want more? And if you said a little, you got a lot. And if you said no, you got a little. Because no didn't really mean no. Ray Romano would say, you would have to, you'd have to pull a gun on my, back off Mrs. Romano. I, I meant no. I, I said no and I mean no. That's exactly how it was in my, my grandma's, in my grandma's home. You eat and eat and eat. But look what it says in verse 39. Look what Jesus will do with compassion and cooperation and care. It says, then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. In verse 40, so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and fifties. Notice what the Lord says. Bring the provision and let's organize into groups. Jesus broke them down into groups of fifties and hundreds because distribution is done decently and in order and in manageable sizes. I think the Lord's best feeding often takes place in exactly those circumstances. In small groups, in kinship groups, in prayer groups, in small Bible studies. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad you're here and I want you to be here and I relish the opportunity to give you this little meal. Guess what? On Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights and Thursday nights and Friday nights, there's opportunity all throughout the church for you to participate in those groups where there can be attention to detail. Like I said, some of the best feeding takes place in small groups. And look at what it says in verse 41. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven. He blessed and he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. How does that happen? Jesus blesses. Hallelujah. I can do that. Jesus breaks. I can break the fish and I can break the bread, but I can't make one fish become two fish and I can't make two fish become four fish. And all of a sudden, a little becomes a lot when Jesus is in control. Jesus supplies the banquet. And he never forces a single person to eat. He won't open your mouth and he won't make you eat it. We have a prophetic look into the future, into his own broken body, 
like the loaves and the fish. His body and his blood will be broken. And it will be given, first of all, to the disciples. And then it will be given to the people. Again, look at verse 41. It says, and when he had taken the fish, he looked up, he blessed and broke and gave. It's important you understand something in verse 42. So they all ate and were filled Jesus is suitable for all, and Jesus is satisfying for all, and Jesus is sufficient for all, suitable for all, because all who come to him, the rich, the poor, the neglected, the pampered, the people, black, white, yellow, all ages, all races, all people groups, all nation, all continents, all who come to him, he's suitable for everyone. And look what else he's satisfying for everyone. Jesus is satisfying for all because all are filled. They all ate. They were all filled. Think about that. Jesus fills the heart. He fills the soul. He satisfies in only the way that he can satisfy. They will eat and they will hunger again the next day. But Jesus makes a spiritual provision that that never goes away. No wonder Jesus would say, don't simply seek for the bread that perishes, but seek for the bread that comes and provides eternal life. Eat the bread that came down from heaven. And he's that bread. And notice Jesus is sufficient for all. All the people had enough and there were leftovers. Look what it says in verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Bible scholars and teachers throughout the centuries have noticed 12. 12 baskets for 12 apostles. The question, of course, is if God can make bread out of nothing and he can make Fish out of nothing. Why keep the leftovers? Why keep the fragments? Why keep the scraps? Because tomorrow's coming. And there's a provision for tomorrow. The care of Jesus is suitable and satisfying and sufficient today, tomorrow, the next day. Verse 44. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. And like I said, with women and children, the crowd swole. So what are the lessons we can learn very quickly? Number one, Jesus was willing to be inconvenienced by the needs of others when he needed rest and he needed time alone. I know that sometimes you need rest. I know that sometimes you need time alone, and I do too. But Jesus is willing to be inconvenienced by the needs of others. And number two, when people came demanding more, when he was tired, he didn't respond with anger or apathy. But he responds with compassion and sympathy. Number three, Jesus saw them as sheep with needs to be fed, to be nurtured, to be protected. Number four, he fed their stomachs, but he also refused to neglect their souls. And number five, Jesus honors what we bring to him. Remember that a little, even a little, even a little becomes much in the master's hand. 
And number six, Jesus never pretended that the miracle was wrought by simple ingenuity. He gave thanks to God. He asked God to bless the gift. And guess what else? He was willing to use people to minister to others. Real people. Common people. Ordinary people. Gifted people. Weak people. He even used the people who were complaining and who were filled with excuses. These are all the reasons why we can't help. And he goes, I'm going to use you anyway. A little boy gave up his lunch. Can you imagine what God could do if you were to give up something else? Not just simply a meal. What would the world be like if you gave up what you thought you needed the most? Your heart, your life, your future. D.L. Moody was once challenged. He said, Someone said to him, the world has yet to see a single man and what God can do through the man who is wholly yielded, consecrated to the Lord. And Moody prayed. He said, I want to be that man. Pearl Harbor. The morning. December 7th, 1941. 353 Japanese airplanes were swarming all over the harbor site. Within a couple of hours, America lost eight big battleships, six major airfields, almost all of our planes, and 2,400 Americans were dead. That happened at 7.50 a.m. It was supposedly a surprise attack, but these are the startling facts. That morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, while the Japanese warplanes were 137 miles, that's 50 minutes away, two soldiers on a small radar station in the Pacific scanned the screen and they saw dots and dots and dots appear over the whole screen. These soldiers notified their youthful supervisor, a lieutenant. No other officer being around since it was early Sunday morning, the lieutenant thought, well, these have to be planes from California. And without further thought, he said these crucial words. Don't worry about it. They would have been able to scramble the planes at Pearl Harbor. They would have been able to prepare the battleships. They would have been able to shelter the men. But this lieutenant, at the most responsible moment of his career and in American history, failed the nation. Please care. Please have compassion. I need you to examine yourself and ask you this important question. What has God called me to do? Because I'm going to suggest something to you that might sound amazing. You may be coming upon the most responsible moment of your life in the kingdom of God. You might be coming upon 
the most responsible moment where more lives will be affected, more hearts will be healed, more people will be open to the gospel than have ever been before. You know what I want more than anything? I want the sum and the substance of all the ministry that has ever taken place at this church in year number 20 to be more incredible and more valuable and more useful than we've ever been. But here's what I guarantee won't happen. It won't happen without you. If you decide to leave and not pray, it won't happen. If you decide to leave and not give, it won't happen. If you decide to leave and that your gifts and your callings don't matter, then something less than could have happened will happen. But I'm here to tell you something. Little will become a whole lot if I individually and us collectively decide to place just a little into the hands of Jesus. Won't you help me? Won't you join with me? Won't you make this upcoming year the best year in Jesus ever? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every man and woman and young person who's here. Lord, I thank you for their lives and I thank you for the gifts and I thank you for the callings that you've placed in their hearts and in their lives. Lord, we know that we can't do everything, but Lord, we must be able to do something. There must be someone or something that we can pray for. There must be someone or something that we can make a difference in their life. There must be some way that we can take what little mean what seems useless and worthless and press it into Jesus' hands in the hopes that people will be fed. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. I pray for this church. I pray for this community, Lord. We pray that we would find ourselves useful for the kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.